Good morning, and welcome. Um, thank you, Luke. If you are uh, new or visiting, you are likely expecting someone different this morning. Uh, my name is Blake Dozier, and I am the youth and family minister here at Oldham Lane. I'm filling in for Chris, who is out of town this weekend, and I am so grateful for the opportunity to speak to you all. Um, I'm going to begin by telling you a true story from my childhood. I don't remember my exact age, but I was probably 12 or 13 years old, old enough to know better. Um, when I attended the birthday party of one of my close friends whose name was Jeff, I believe Chad was there. Jeff was a uh, running buddy of my brother Chad and I, and we shared a lot of hours together living a pretty awesome childhood. We um, spent summer days riding bikes and building forts and smashing pennies on the railroad tracks and getting in trouble for smashing pennies on the railroad tracks. And I mean, we tore up the little town of Buffalo Gap. And there was one day in particular where we bit off a little more than we could chew. I think it was maybe the extra friends that were at the birthday party that gave us some additional boldness. Um, but we took off on a little exploratory adventure in the woods behind Jeff's house. We found a little creek draw to walk down, and we did that for I don't know how long. Um, and then we followed some deer trails through the cedar trees and the cactus. We found this awesome little stock tank. Someone had left us a John boat right there that let us get across the stock tank. Um, we went over several fences and through several different trails, and we finally found this awesome hunting blind that had a deck out front and carpet on the inside, and I mean, it, was, it had like furniture and stuff. It was really nice. We had a grand old time doing what I now recognize was absolutely trespassing. Um, and then one of us decided it would probably be a good idea to head home. That should be easy enough, but as we looked up and looked around us, all of a sudden, all of the cedar trees looked the same, and all of the deer trails looked the same. And there wasn't a single one of us who had any clue where we were. So our sheer enjoyment quickly turned to sheer panic. And, and we scrambled from cedar tree to cedar tree and fence row to fence row trying to find something familiar. And, and looking back the other direction, nothing looked the same. And, and I'll never forget the feeling that came over me, this, this feeling deep inside me that I was never going to see my family again. I just knew it. This was the end. It was, it was really a horrible feeling. And I knew it was my fault. We shouldn't have been doing that. And every effort that we made to correct our course seemed to make it worse. I'll never forget the relief I felt when I heard my parents calling in the distance. And, I mean, there wasn't a cedar tree or a cactus plant or anything that was going to stay in my way. And, and I think I played it cool when I came out of the clearing and saw them, but I've never been so scared. Has, it, has anyone in here ever experienced the feeling of being lost? My feeling of vulnerability stands in contrast to Jesus' experience from the only story we have from his youth in Luke chapter 2 when he also was lost. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 41 through 47. I may have to let you all run it. I don't think the clicker's working. Okay. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 41, we read, Now his parents, and this is Jesus, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. 
And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. But supposing him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. You know, Luke writes this in kind of a calm manner. But can you imagine being in Mary and Joseph's shoes? I mean, it's a horrible feeling to lose a child, but Mary didn't just lose any child. I mean, this was God's son. And, and I can't imagine what her prayers would have been like. I mean, so God, I don't know how to tell you this, but I kind of made a mistake. I'm going to need some help. I've misplaced your son. Um, we have to give Mary a little bit of credit. Uh, they, were, they were probably traveling with extended family. It would have been normal for the women to travel separate from the men. Jesus would have been at an age where it would have been normal for him to go back and forth between the two groups. And so each parent probably thought Jesus was with the other one. In my story, I went missing for two hours, though. Jesus was missing for three days. This wasn't the only time Mary would experience three days of agony for her son, but it was the first time. And I cannot imagine what must have been running through her mind. We give them a hard time for losing God's son, but I think they were probably terrified. What would you have been asking yourself if you were in their shoes? Well, you would have been wondering, where is he? Is he okay? Is someone taking care of him? Is he, is he safe? Are we ever going to see him again? Is he hurt? Is he scared? The story ends well. He was in the safest place imaginable. He was in the temple. He wasn't distressed. He was very safe. And, and because of that, we often focus in on how awesome it was that he was demonstrating such an understanding of Scripture. And, and that really is incredible. But I have some questions. I mean, who took care of Jesus during these three days? Where did he sleep, and who kept him safe? More importantly, who fed this 12-year-old boy? I mean, some of you have experience feeding 12-year-olds, and you know that that's no small task. I mean, maybe because he was God's son, he didn't need to eat. But I don't think so. The scripture gives us no indication of anything supernatural happening in Jesus' life until his ministry began at the age of 30. In fact, the only glimpse we get of his childhood and his adolescence is this passage in Luke chapter 2. We read in verse 40 and verse 52 that Jesus was developing physically, mentally, spiritually, and relationally. I mean, he appears like any other child, and an important part of that development is eating and sleeping. It appears to me that the Jewish community stepped in to care for a boy that they didn't know. Someone fed him, someone kept him safe, someone gave him a place to stay, and somehow they listened to him. Three days later, when his parents catch up with him, he's amazing this community with his questions and his ideas. They didn't just keep Jesus safe. They gave him a voice. And a 12-year-old Jewish boy didn't get a voice unless someone gave it to him. I can't help but wonder what the experience of young people here at Oldham Lane is like. 
Do they feel seen, heard, known, and welcomed? Are we a place where someone, anyone really, not just a young person, who is lost, someone who has needs can show up and have those needs met? Are we a community willing to jump up to the plate and integrate an outsider as if they were our own? What does it feel like to be a high school student at Oldham Lane or a college student at Oldham Lane or a single young professional or maybe a parent or an empty nester or an aging widow or widower? What does it feel like to be a new family in town looking for a church home or a family that doesn't have any church experience but is searching? What would it feel like to be in someone else's shoes this morning? You know, recent research has shown that what we assume people are looking for in a church is often incorrect. We tend to assume that people want to be entertained, and it's encouraging to hear that that's not the case. What is supported by research is even more difficult than that, because what people are really drawn to, and what really develops a lasting and vibrant faith is being part of a family. Being in a place where you feel like you really belong. Sharing this experience of Jesus, where you're seen heard, known, and welcomed, especially when you're vulnerable. I've been here for 22 years, and this is without a doubt family for me. It has been so long since I have felt vulnerable at Oldham Lane that I've almost forgotten what it feels like. These halls are second nature to me. I I grew up in them. I have lifetime friendships with people from every generation. I don't wonder where I'm going to sit, or who I'm going to talk to, or if I'm wearing the right thing. I don't wonder about what's going to happen next in the service, or what the expectations are for my speech and my behavior. And many of you are in the exact same boat as me, but many of you aren't. Some of you are here this morning for the first time ever, and you were probably confused when you pulled into the parking lot and weren't sure quite which door to go to. And you went down this maze of halls trying to find a classroom or the auditorium. Some of you may be wondering where you should sit or who you should talk to or what you're going to talk about. You might be wondering if you're dressed right or what's going to happen next in the worship service, when you should stand, when you should sit, what you should do after the closing prayer. And if you're in that boat this morning, I just want to stop and say thank you. Thank you for stepping out of your comfort zone and welcome. We sincerely want this to be a place where you feel welcome and accepted. We want this to be a place where genuine people exude warmth. And that's the title of my sermon this morning, Warmth. As Oldham Lane grows, we are increasingly becoming a place where the lives of numerous people intersect, and often in a way that forces them to display some vulnerability and put themselves out there. And how we navigate these intersecting relationships matters. And while I believe we have a track record of doing a pretty good job, as we grow, our natural propensity is to be warm and inviting starts to wane. And we have to really work at radiating warmth to those around us. Which begs the question, what exactly is warmth? Warmth is a hard thing to put your finger on. When Brianna and I first got married... I quickly became appalled at the number of holes she put in the wall um, to hang these decorations that served no practical purpose. It wasn't that as a bachelor I didn't have any decorations, but something about them wasn't quite what Brianna had envisioned for our home. They did not exude warmth. They were utilitarian, they were functional, but they were not warm. 
Warmth is the difference in a dorm room and a bedroom. It's the difference in an acquaintance and a best friend. It's the difference in a nice meal at a restaurant and a home-cooked meal shared around the table with family. It's more powerful than good preaching. It's more powerful than good teaching. And it's more powerful than good singing. Warmth doesn't come from a building. It doesn't come from a worship style. And it doesn't even come from every doctrinal issue being spot on. The truth is, those are important, but those are easy. Warmth comes from being surrounded by genuine people who genuinely want you to be there. I use the story of Jesus to jumpstart our thinking because I believe when we read between the lines, there's a gem of truth about what it meant to be part of the Jewish community. But the reality is, we don't have to read between the lines and extrapolate things about Jewish culture to know what a healthy Christian community looks like. The scripture tells us very clearly in Acts chapter 2, if you'll turn there to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. In Acts chapter 2, the first gospel sermon ever has been preached. 3,000 people repented and were baptized, and we have the New Testament church established for the first time, and the first glimpse we get of what this community looks like starts in verse 42 where we read, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You know, we get really hung up on them selling their stuff and sharing it. That's foreign to us. That's weird to us. That makes us really uncomfortable. And, and we almost get defensive when we read that. But the thing is, this passage is about so much more than their stuff. This, this passage, and what I want you to notice this morning, tells us what motivated this type of behavior. Look, look back to your text, and in verse 30, 43, the first thing it says is, there was a pervasive feeling of awe. You know, sometimes we're scared to talk about feeling something, but, but the New Testament Christians were blown away at what was happening around them. They had just witnessed speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit was working miracles through the apostles. Jesus Christ had just been raised from the dead. The natural and supernatural world were, were colliding in front of their very eyes, and, and they were awestruck. Now, I admit, we don't have the same front row seat that they had. We have a reliable document that testifies to its truthfulness. We have an awe-inspiring creation around us. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 tells us his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. They were first and foremost drawn together because they shared collective feeling of awe at the power and working of God. And we should too. Verse 44 tells us that those who believed were together. This one's pretty simple and it doesn't require a lot of explanation. They shared proximity. 
They were spending time with one another in the same place, exactly like we're doing right now, and, and that is good. We have to be in proximity. And, and so far, we can feel pretty good about ourselves, collective all, spending time together, check, check. But, but he doesn't stop there. He, he pushes us a little further when he says in verse 44 that they shared all things in common. When he says all things, I have a hard time believing that he was talking about physical things, especially because the next phrase he specifically points out, those physical things. This is a powerful statement because it tells us that they were sharing life together. And their shared life is what caused them to share their stuff. They were so connected spiritually that their stuff began to flow between them on account of each other's needs. See, this starts to push us outside ourselves. But the text goes on because there's more. In verse 46, we read that this was a daily thing. This wasn't just a Sunday and possibly a Wednesday thing. Because you don't develop these type of connections two days a week, sitting in a pew and listening to someone else speak. This time that we spend together right now is important because it unifies us. And this is something that the New Testament church was doing. In fact, we read in verse 46 that on a daily basis, one of the things they did was worship together. They spent time with one mind in the temple. So obviously this is important, but they also shared meals in one another's homes. See, something powerful happens over a shared meal. And something powerful happens when we share our living space with another person. Something different happens in our homes, and we're able to connect a different way. And they did that on a daily basis. And finally, they had gladness and sincerity of heart when they praised God and when they interacted with people. This tells me that when people came to their home, they genuinely wanted them to be there. What a beautiful picture of warmth. What a beautiful example of Christian community. And then we read something that makes it more awesome. Because the text tells us God was adding to their number on a daily basis. You see, this was a community that was open to God's redeeming grace in the life of other people. They were not a closed community. They were a close community. I feel like Oldham Lane is a very warm place, and the warmth is evident if you stick around for an hour after service ends, and you see people are still talking because they don't want to leave. The warmth is evident if you walk into our children's classrooms and you see the way our teachers love and care for our children. The warmth is evident when an older person brings a newspaper article about one of our teacher, teenagers and brings it to church and shares it with them and tells them how proud they were to see their name in the paper. The warmth is evident when tragedy strikes and people come out of the woodworks to support one another. Oldham Lane is family to me, and I feel the warmth, but I do wonder what Oldham Lane feels like to someone who hasn't been here for 22 years. Are we a warm community? Do we make people feel like they belong? Are we a place where people without a family can find one? I think we've knocked a home run at times. I think we've swung and missed at times, and I think if we're being honest, there have been times when we failed to swing. I can't create warmth for 600 people. It's not possible. Chris can't create warmth. Jake can't create warmth. The elders can't create warmth. You have a personal responsibility 
to set the tone and the environment at Oldham Lane. You have a personal responsibility to create warmth. Here are some very quick and practical reminders for how to do that. All of these are a two-way street, but these reminders are really geared towards those of you who, like me, are really comfortable here. Number one, sit with people. I know that seems simple, but sit with people, and especially people you don't know. Cultivating warmth begins with proximity. The text tells us that they were together, and I know that that's simple, but, but sometimes we have a hard time stepping outside of ourselves. Is someone new in class? They shouldn't be alone. Is someone sitting in your pew? We'll, we'll sit with them. Um, often as a church, we look to programming to cultivate warmth. All programs are capable of is putting us in proximity. So there's a lot of opportunities for this at Oldham Lane. We have small groups, age-specific classes, fellowship meals, prime timers, ladies' Bible class, men's coffee. The list could go on and on. But once we are in proximity, then we have to, then we have to take the next step, and that means opening our mouth and talking to people. And, and I know that it seems simple and elementary, but... But sometimes it's not. Proximity isn't enough. Words have to be exchanged for relationships to be formed. Some of you are more gifted at this than others. Some of us may be too gifted at this. Um, but sharing words is important. And after we've shared, after we've talked, we have to take it the next step because we have to figure out how to share life with people. If your relationship doesn't extend outside the walls of this church, that's not good enough. And it won't cut it. That's not what we see in Acts chapter 2. That's not how the New Testament Christians interacted. And it's not okay 2,000 years later. They were together. They spent time on a daily basis. They ate together. They shared life. And this takes time. It's a two-way street. Which means sometimes you're the recipient. And sometimes you're the giver. Sometimes people might need to be in your home. And sometimes you might have to travel to theirs. But the bottom line is, I know that you don't cultivate a warm, a warm environment without genuine relationships, and you can't have relationships without spending time together. We are so much more than a group of people who meet occasionally and sometimes cooperate in projects together. Romans chapter 12, verse 4 through 5, tells us that we are part of one another. It says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You are connected, tendon and bone, to the smelly teenagers, and the jaded young adults, and the aging grandparents. We have been adopted into one body. What have you done today to demonstrate your oneness with another Christian in this room? Remember, sit, talk, and live. I want to leave you with the words of Jesus from John chapter 13, verse 35, where we read, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There is no greater testament to our identity than the way we relate to one another. Let's be a church who loves and loves deeply, a church that radiates the warmth of Christ to one another and in the, to the community around us. If you have been searching for a place of belonging, search no further. We are a close community, but we're not a closed community. At the very end of our passage in Acts chapter 2, we read that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
And God is still the one adding to the number, and we aren't left guessing what that process looks like. These Christians, after being taught the truth about Jesus, who he was, about his death, about his burial, and about his resurrection, repented of their sinful ways and attached themselves to the free gift of grace that's available through Jesus Christ by baptism. And 2,000 years later, that offer has not changed. We love having non-Christians here. But you can never experience the depth of joy in Christian community without the common bond of salvation. And so we invite you this morning, God invites you to salvation, to renewal, and to eternal belonging. Come now as we stand and sing. There's a fountain.